Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Isn't that just like the most heartbreaking thing you've ever seen? This poor sloth traveled so far only to know that she had another man. I bet you're wondering how this is going to tie in today. I don't really know. This was the other video that I really liked of the sloth, so I was like, we've got to find a way to play this. No, um, uh, we've been talking about sloths a lot. I feel like I've grown in my um, collection of sloth-related things. People have been sending me things or... Uh, just finding clever things that I really enjoyed. Uh, but the point of a sloth is, let's be honest, if someone asks you what your spirit animal is, you're not going to say sloth. You're going to say something like a cheetah or a lion or maybe like an otter because they're fun, but you're not going to say a sloth. And if someone said, oh, yeah, you remind me of a sloth, like it's an insult. It's not an encouraging thing. But the reality is sloths live at a pace that is manageable for them, and I think oftentimes we could learn a lot from a sloth. And so as we conclude our series today called Slow Down, and then we're actually not meeting next week for Memorial Day, uh, we're giving you that weekend off, and we're sending uh, 18 people on our different cohorts to go backpacking into Michigan. So we'll be gone. So as we, as we take a break and then start our new summer series, uh, as we wrap up today, I'm kind of actually talking about a piece that pulls together all of the last um, several weeks of our series. Normally you start off with like the foundation and you build on it. Uh, and in this series, I decided to wait till the end to sort of tie everything together with what we've been talking about. And the, uh, the, 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 thing, the theme that I've, I've been realizing in my life as, I've been, as we've been going through the series, I've had the opportunity to teach on it, is um, you know, most of us are weighing our lives in such a way where we have this vision ahead of us. And sometimes we're really conscious of it, like we have these goals, we have these values, we have the 5, 10, 20-year plan, whatever it is, right? A lot of times, though, we don't, and we still have a vision, we just don't realize it, right? We're subdued by the culture and the reality of the lives that we are around and the job and the people. So either way, we're, like, going somewhere. Um, some of us are more intentional about those steps to get there. Some of us are just, like, whatever, floating with the water or the waves. But in this series, what I feel like I've pulled away is, is that being a follower of Jesus, it's actually probably more important to, to navigate through who you're becoming in that journey than the end destination, because each of those little steps that we see every day or every week or every month are incredibly formative to where we're going. For instance, if you say, well, I would just really like to be a more patient person in 10 years, and then at nine, nine years and 364 days, you're like, I'm not any more patient, but tomorrow will be the day. You're just silly, right? Like, it's just not going to happen. And everyone else in the world can make dreams and, and sort of sacrifice a lot of the means to get to the end. And they can do whatever they need to do to get to that end. They can grind. They can lie. They can cheat. Whatever it is, they can never take a break. But followers of Jesus aren't really allowed to do that. That's not the pace that we run at. And if we have a vision for something, we actually, the means do matter. We can't just forsake integrity for the sake of something that we want in the future. I've joked about this with like, people who are like, oh, I'm going to retire in 10 years, and then I'll be a good dad and a good husband. And I joke, well, that's if you still have a marriage and kids that want to be around you. Because if you sacrifice them for 10 years to get there, you might not actually get what you wanted. And so the means are just as important in the end, and that's why slowing down matters, because what we do today and what we do this week and this month actually matters for where we're going. And to close this and to wrap up this series, I want us to think about that, a little bit more of the day-to-day and the month-to-month than, than just the grand vision that we have. But to get there, I want to close with 
uh, just talking about the last several weeks. So we, we've went through several different weeks about basically comparing the speed of love and how it's always contrary to the speed of hurry and how love and hurry aren't compatible. That was the first week we talked about to, to be with Jesus, to walk in his way means to follow his speed, which is never in a hurry. And then next week we talked about savoring, the day of savor or Sabbath, and how we're called to, to rest and to sit in the rest and to take a day every week as best we can to worship, to rest, to delight, and to heal, and those four things becoming a priority in, in our lives. And then the week after that we talked about influence and fame and popularity, what the world runs after, and the antidote for that being serving others. As Jesus said, I came to serve others, to be a ransom for others, not to serve or to serve others, not to be served. And so we embodied that same idea. Then we talked about meaningful relationships, quality rather than just impressive quantity, and how we should, we should really think diligently about do we have deep, meaningful relationships in our lives where we can disciple or apprentice and pour into others, as opposed to just being well-known or popular or having tons of followers or whatever it may be, but being able to dive deep into the few that even we saw Jesus do. And then last week, we actually talked about slowing down in terms of finance. We talked about how greed is probably the most insidious, uh, undiagnosed sin in not only our hearts, but in America. No one really comes to anyone and says, yeah, I'm just being really greedy right now. Uh, But we all are very much dealing with it, and we surround ourselves in cultures that are greedy. And greed will never allow us to be what Jesus calls us to, which is a generous person, and to root ourselves in that generosity. So as we tie all that up, I, I, I simplified it in this If we were to sum up everything we've learned, if we walk in the steps of Jesus, we walk behind him as an apprentice would, and we adapt his pace, we prioritize love over busyness, time of rest over constant production, serving others over influence, fame, popularity, and power, deep relationships that are quality as opposed to just social quantity, and generous eternal purses over a heart of selfishness and greed. And lastly, we, we actually practiced that, and that's um, we gave away $2,000 to you guys, and we gave envelopes of like $20 to $100 and asked you just, if you already have an internal purse, add to it. If you don't, go do something or just pray that the Spirit would give you an opportunity. And I had a lot of different stories that were really great. A lot of people gave to someone that was maybe homeless in their life. Um, they gave to a server. They gave to a neighbor in need that they knew. They gave to another ministry that they really are excited about. Uh, I had the opportunity to experience this in a pretty powerful way. Last week when I was driving down to park on Sunday, I had this $2,000 in my console. And I was like, all right, we're going to do this. And then this family that I've been kind of seeing recently and been talking to, uh, it's a mom with six kids and they're homeless. They live out of their sedan. And I was like, man, should I just give them all this money right now? You know, and I was like, I feel like I could just be like, can I help you find a home or whatever? And then I was like, no, I already talked about doing this, and I told the elders so I should probably do what I told them I'd say I'd do. So I decided, no. But I said, I tested the Lord. I was like, Lord, if you give me another opportunity, I'll pull the trigger on it, no, no hesitation. So I went inside, and then we did this thing last week. We gave $2,000 away. We gave $800 to Little Bottoms. If you brought your moms, that was cool. We donated $50 for each mom. And at the end of it, though, there were just a few envelopes left over. There was like four or five. It was like $150, $200. Bucks. And so you know, I was like, what am I going to do with this? Right? And so I decided, I'm going to go to Cameron Mitchell and buy a steak. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but I was like, I really don't know what to do with this. <laughs> i got to do something with it. And so I, I was walking down the street to go to my truck, and the lady and the kids, who weren't, they weren't there. And I was like, oh, well, I guess, you know, oh, well, I'll just have to figure something else out. And just as I'm about to leave, they actually pull in down the street. 
And I was like, all right, Lord. So I, came, I went out and I just gave her the money and, and said happy Mother's Day. And she was super grateful. And there's things like that where, you know, in the moment you're like, okay, I did this thing. I was faithful. I felt this, like, conviction, right? I followed through. Um, but a lot of people who wrote the story literally said, like, yeah, like, nothing, you know, no fireworks. Like, no one, like, oh, my gosh, gave my life over to Jesus over these $20, right? And I had communicated that prior that, hey, when you're generous, when you do these things, like, it's not about the result. It's about you being called to what you're called to do and you being a light in the community of the world. I mean, how many times do we have something good happen to us and nothing changes, right? We have somebody love us and it doesn't just change our lives, right? And that's not what it's about. But creating these reps and this muscle that we're called to, being generous and having generous opportunities, have been really, really encouraging. So even though we're not going to return an investment in terms of money, like we're not having $2,000 come back in or more, most likely, and that's not what it's about. It's about just like being able to be a community that this is continually on our map and our radar. So thanks for doing that if you did do that. Um, but that was last week, and then this all culminates all of this stuff around today. And what we're going to talk about today is this simple word called abide. Abide, or mino is the Greek word. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 15. If you don't, you can steal one in the back. Uh, we're going to be camping there today. John 15 is my, probably my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. When we wrote the book Following Jesus, I put it in the front. And then I even created this 40-day journal based on that word called Mino. And it's all about abiding daily. And so as we talk about it today, I just want you to really just saturate yourself in the understanding of the word abide. And what the word abide really means, you think about it typically when you hear it, you're thinking about the law. Like you need to abide by the law, right? Which would seem as tolerating something. It typically has a negative connotation. Uh, Accepting a rule or a recommendation, abiding by their advice. But abide in the Bible is, is a little bit different. And what it's getting at is, in your translation right now, might say, remain is another word. Remain uh, or dwell. But I think the best definition that would be explained is to make yourself at home. To make yourself at home. Uh, and so every time you see the word abide in your translation or remain, I, I think it's best to understand is making yourself at home. You think about what it means to make yourself at home in someone's house. When they say, hey, make yourself at home, what they mean is, like, just relax. Just kick up your feet, right? Go grab a drink out of the fridge, right? It's, it's mine is yours, right? There's this sense of, of just oneness. And John uses this word so many times. He uses it 40 times in his gospel, in, this, in the book of John. He uses it 27 times in the other letters he writes. And that's at 67 times. And he just centers the whole kind of gospel around this word. And for him, what, what the word means is making yourself at home, but he's talking about it in a very permanent aspect. So abiding for him is a permanency of a relationship with someone. So weirdly enough, when you get married, you could actually say you're abiding in one another. You're remaining in one another as a covenant, as one flesh. You are permanently continuing together and journeying together and making yourself at home with each other in your marriage. That's a good way to think about it. And John sees that exactly the same, not only in our lives with Jesus, which is what John 15 is about, but that Jesus has done that with God the Father and God the Spirit. In John 1, you don't have to turn there, but in John 1, at the beginning of the book of John, verse 32, there's this dramatic scene where Jesus is getting baptized, and we see all three uh, persons in the Trinity, God the Father saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, and you have the Holy Spirit as the dove, right, Uh, flying in like a dove, not a dove, flying in like a dove. You know, some people are like, it's a dove, that's the Holy Spirit. Every time I see a dove, I'm like, well, doves kind of suck, but they, they fly everywhere and eat things and poop, so I don't know, but flew in like a dove, okay? 
and, and dwells on Jesus. The Word, I'll read it, I saw the Spirit descending like a dove from heaven, and it remained on Him. It minoed on Him. It made itself home on Jesus. In the same way that the Spirit made itself home on Jesus, we are to make ourselves at home with Jesus and vice versa with Him. So that, that's the start of the relationship of Jesus. He's saying He is minoing with the Father, with the Spirit. They're all one in beautiful, abiding relationship. And then... Another point that I love, and like I said, it's all throughout the gospel. My other favorite part where I see this is actually in Matthew, where Jesus is in this last grueling, anxious scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. He's kind of talking with the Father, and he's like, I don't want to do this, but if it's your will, I'm going to do it. And he's just like, you know, just a ball of, like just an anxious ball, right? He's grieving the reality of the loneliness, the torture, all that, and it's coming, right? He's human. And... And he asks his disciples to just be there and to stay awake with him, and, right? and they obviously can't do that because they just are duds. But they fall asleep and several times. He comes back and he prays. He comes back, they fall asleep, he prays again. His, one of his last lines that he says before they, the um, Pharisees and all that come to take him, he says, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Mino here, make yourself at home and stay awake with me. One of Jesus' last desires as a human is to have people be present in his life. Which got me to thinking, like, do I ever think about the fact that when I neglect my relationship with Jesus, that he might be more saddened than I am that I'm neglecting it? Oftentimes, we, like, feel bad or guilty or shame, right? Oh, I'm not, I'm just not, I'm not showing up to the coffee date with Jesus, right? But, like, he's a human. He, he grieves that. that he is, he, it's a relationship, and when you stand up your best friend... It's not just about you feeling bad. It's about the reality that they, too, want to be in relationship with you. And that's the beauty of abiding is that you're both making yourselves home in one another. It's not one person who's only giving or one person who's only receiving. Jesus is pointing to a deep relationship here. And this is where it brings us to John 15. So I'm going to read John 15, 1 through 11. I'm going to read the whole way through it. And every time I I have the word amino, I'm going to say make yourself at home. So if you're following your translation, try to keep... Try to follow along, but it might be a little bit confusing. But I'm going to read it. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He takes away every branch that does not bear fruit in me. He prunes every branch that bears fruit so that it will bear even more fruit. You are clean already because of the word that I have spoken to you. Make yourself home in me, and I will make myself home in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it makes itself home in the vine, so neither can you unless you make yourself home in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who makes themselves home in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can accomplish nothing. If anyone does not make themselves home in me, they are thrown out like, uh, they are thrown out like a branch and dries up. And such branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire and are burned up. If you make yourself home in me and make my words, and my words make their home in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is honored by this, that you bear much fruit and show that you are my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Make yourself home in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will make yourself home in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and make myself home in his love. I have told you these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. I don't know about you, there's a lot of making yourself home there. And you realize it. You really realize the relational aspect of the gospel. And so today, slowing down is abiding. 
it, it, it roots into all areas of our lives. It roots into how we feel about influence and fame and popularity, our greedy hearts, uh, our time, whether or not we savor or not, right? All of these things, it's all rooted in there. And the thing about abiding and the thing that we'll see and that we, we, we see in these verses is a lot of times we are, it's like a dog on a leash and you got a big dog and they're like, it's like a husky probably. And it's like, I'm going to pull you. I'm going to drag you wherever I want to go. And those of you who have a husky or like a Samoyed or like a bigger dog like that, it's kind of painful to walk them. <laughs> you like got to have your, your running shoes on, you know? You're like, oh, this is going to be something. And a lot of times that's how we treat Jesus. We're on a leash and we're just like dragging Jesus everywhere we want to go. And then we get mad when we feel like he's not present with us. And this abiding pace is always slower than we think it is. It's always slower. Even when Paul, uh, who writes a lot of the letters, the epistles of the churches, when he talks about the idea of a race, he compares the spiritual life to a race that we finish well. He's far more concerned about endurance and pace than he is about speed. But what do we do? We're American. We take everything and try to make it as great and sexy and fast as we can because that's awesome and it's great. But that is not walking with Jesus. One of the things that we were talking about in premarital counseling with a couple was how when you get married, uh, it's, it's almost 100% chance that you will be married when one of your parents dies and how you will have to walk through that together. And, you know, a lot of us don't think about that, right? We think about marriage. We think about how we're going to deal with our in-laws. But we don't think about the reality that in our lives and in our marriage, there will be this valley. It will be hard. It's always hard to lose a parent, no matter what. And so to say, you know, our marriage is, is going to be amazing and great every day, it's actually not true. And so it's more about the pace and the endurance of walking through it together than it is about saying everything is going to be amazing and great and we're going to run at this pace. And so Jesus uses this illustration of a vine. And, you know, if you've ever, if anybody ever been to a vineyard, they have these, these trellises. And we've, we've used this illustration with a trellis before. But there's this big vine. And then it has all these, like, little branches. And from the branches come the fruit. The, the vine actually doesn't really necessarily bear fruit from it. It provides all the nutrients for all of the um, branches to bear fruit. This is my quick drawing. So believe it or not, I had, I had almost a minor in graphic design. This is what you get, I guess. So, <laughs> Right? And so Jesus uses this idea. He says, I'm the vine, right? And, and God the Father is essentially overseeing this operation, okay? So what I want to do is I want us to center on this, this, this uh, passage, and I have just eight things I'm just going to point out. And think of like a shotgun shot. They're just going to hit all these different places. They're not all like cohesive and linear, but eight different components of what it means to abide. You're going to get a really good picture of what it is and what it isn't based on this. And so the first one that we'll see, number one, is in verse one. It's very simple, but it's very profound, and we often miss it. Jesus says, I am the vine. Now I know we're like, okay, I get it. Cool analogy. People drink wine. They understand vines. But there's something much deeper that's happening because for the last several thousand years, Israel, the nation of Israel, was chosen as the vine. And, and God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to show the world how to be human because I created them, so I know. And I'm going to sh- show them through you. And when you follow the righteousness of the law, you will show people how to be human. And then from that, you'll be the vineyard of the world, basically, this chosen nation from the vine. And how do they do over the last several thousand years? If you read the Old Testament, not even neutral, terrible. <laughs> not good. The religious leaders manipulated things. People were sinning. They were like just missing the law. They weren't atoning correctly. It was just, just people being people, right? 
And so Jesus says, I am the true vine. I have fulfilled what it means to be the prototypical human and to show God's love through what it means to be human. That's what Jesus did. And then when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, his first teaching uh, to all these public people, he like raises the bar and he raises the bar. And what he does is he points at a lot of the ways that we see faith even today, which is dangerous, and it is this. See, when you were Jewish, the way that it worked is you had holiness here or righteousness. They're, they're similar. They're not exactly the same, but kind of synonymous. And then the, the, this is just sort of time right here. And the Pharisees... You know, we're like right here, and they're like, okay, the law, the law is, is, you know, is right here, and so we're going to create rules that will bring you to here, because they created another fence around the law. They wanted to be so strict, they didn't want to take chances. And so what happened is, Israel is trying to, to basically create people uh, who will continually reach that line, and what they'll do is... They have all these rules, right? They have the 600-some rules in the Bible, and they add a couple hundred, several hundred more in their own rules. And so they have all these rules that they can, they can gauge where you're at based on this. Okay, did you do this thing? Did you sin? Did you, were you adulterer? Were you murderer? Did you not Sabbath correctly? All these things, right? And so then the spiritual journey kind of looks like this, right? And, and then what happens is the Pharisees, though, were doing this based on their own agenda. And they were prideful, and they, would, they, were, they were insidiously good, at hiding what their hearts were doing. And so what happens is this creates this level of just falling short. And, and so what happens is Jesus, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, he's basically saying, like, I am, I am the true vine. I will show you. I'm the law fulfilled. What he's doing is he's basically saying, like, this is, this is the law, and God created this, and, and it's impossible. He says, unless the righteousness of the Pharisees, if you see the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're not, you're not going to be in the kingdom. And you're like, that's not good because that's really hard. And everybody was like, the Pharisees dedicated their lives to this and they can't even do it. Because what Jesus is saying is, yeah, it's, it's not possible. Jesus is, he's not even here. He's like up in the ceiling. But he's, he's up here. He's perfect, right? And he fulfills the law in its deepest purpose. And, and then we're called to be like Jesus, but I don't know about you. I'm not perfect. I've already screwed up. You've already screwed up. I hate to break it to you. And what happens is we even do this today where we, we judge our our relationship with Jesus, we judge our, our salvation based on our trajectory of holiness, meaning the things that we do, the things that we don't do. And so what happens is we create this rift where if we're doing bad, we feel like trash and we feel guilty and we feel shame and we feel like unworthy. But then if we're doing good, we feel pretty good. And then before we know it, we're hypocritical, right? We start judging others. Why can't they get their lives together? I have my life together. I, I was freed from this sin. Why are they still struggling, right? And this is the tension that we deal with. And this is really not the gospel. This is religiosity. This is exactly what the Pharisees were dealing with. And this is also exhausting because no matter where you're at on this chart, you're just not happy, right? Because you're never going to be here. And the closer you get, the better you think you are, which means you, you kind of fall down again, right? And then when you're in your valleys, you, you, you don't trust God. You're like, well, why would God do this to me, right? God doesn't love me. Or I did something wrong. I didn't do enough to earn the love. But then when you're doing really good, you start to think you did something for yourself. You start to think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a great job and I'm generous and I all this, right? And you take credit for it. This is a human-made thinking. The problem is, is that even though I'm describing the Israelites and even us now, is that this is how we're raised. If you just swapped out holiness for performance or grades, you, you live the exact same way. Like, if you're like, this is an A+, and you get an A-, and you're just devastated. You're like, how dare they? 
right? Or so-and-so got an A+, and they didn't even study as hard, and then you hate them, right? Or sports, right? You have this time you need to get, or this, this, this team you need to be on, right? Or there's just, we constantly do this. We're always, we know we're like, oh, I'm never going to get perfect, but I want to be there. And if I'm struggling, if I break my knee, if I, something happens to me, all of a sudden we are like just struggling. And we do the same thing in faith. You read your Bible three days in a, row, in a row, you feel great. You skip church on Sunday because you're not feeling good and then you feel like trash, right? Or people make you feel guilty. This is how we live and it's just exhausting. But what Jesus is getting at is something much different and what he roots this entire story in is not, is not actually righteousness, not that he doesn't care that we, we strive for um, righteousness and obeying his law, but it's something much greater and it's actually something way less uh, sexy in our world today, and it's actually brokenness. Because think about it, if you're a vine, if, if Jesus is the vine and you're a branch, 100% of your nutrients are not coming from yourself. And he even says this, if you're cut off, you got no chance. You're just not going to make it. All of your nutrients is coming from Jesus. So how do, we, how do we create a culture where this matters and we're not bragging about our own fruit and we're not living like this? We actually are more aware of our brokenness. And so weirdly enough, this is the gospel, and this is why it's hard for some people, is because the gospel is not, I'm going to make myself better, and I'm going to do more, and I'm going to be more impressive. It's actually, I realize how broken I am. I realize, here's the bar, and I can't do it. I just can't make it. And the best way to describe this is the story in John 8, where this woman comes, and they caught her in adultery. They're trying to set Jesus up. They're trying to pin him. And Jesus says to them, all right, that's fine. She's deserving of murder. Whoever has, has not sinned can cast the first stone. And it says, the oldest first from the youngest dropped their stones. Why did the oldest drop their stones first? They've lived longer. They've been very aware they're not perfect. Young shots are like, uh, young bucks are like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, oldest to youngest. In the same way, we, it doesn't take you very long to live life to know that you're not perfect. And this right here is exhausting. And what Jesus is calling to us in this abiding relationship is not about us walking hand in hand and saying, Jesus, look what I got. Look how cool this is. It's us knowing that when we hold his hand, that is everything we need. And when we run ahead, good luck. When we, when we walk behind, good luck, right? It's, it's this abiding relationship where we are then creating from brokenness, there's an equal level that's creating dependence. And that's what the gospel is rooted in. It's rooted in, I mean, the first part of the gospel is admitting that you can't do it and receiving the, the free gift given to you because you can't. In Jesus. Now, I mean, AA probably gets this better than the church does because that's an aspect of, you know, hitting rock bottom, realizing you can't do it on your own, right? The church is not so good at that. But that is the truth, is the gospel is, I am broken, I can't do this. And the more that I realize that, the more that I surrender, the more that I, I cling on deeply to Jesus' hand and walking with him, the more I actually realize how much more dependent I am. And so that's the danger of idols, which are money and status and power and fame and all these things, because they create the illusion that we're not really that broken, that we can really do everything, that we are independent, that nothing can actually take us by surprise. But the beauty of this is that the more we realize we're broken, the bigger the cross of Jesus becomes, the more the gospel starts to become real in our lives. And this is actually the way that we should properly look at gauging spiritual maturity. And the reason why I love this is because this is guilt and shame-driven, and this is grace, it's grace-filled. It's just realizing that anytime I realize that I am not where I need to be, that I have to cling to Jesus, and the more the gospel becomes real in my life. And you've seen this with people. 
Some people are right here. They don't think they're really that bad. They think they have control of most areas of their lives. And so Jesus isn't that big of a deal to them. He's very nominal. You ask them to do something dramatic, and they're like, eh, I don't know. I don't really want to do that. And you're like, how could you not do this? This is like, come on, this is like following Jesus, right? And you get angry with them. But they're just, they're right here. And to be honest, sometimes we, you included, are at a wall, and you're stuck, and you're not willing to acknowledge the depth of it. Maybe you're just like not willing to let go of your, your, your financial security. Maybe you're not willing to let go of a relationship. Maybe you're not willing to acknowledge your childhood trauma or your generational sin in your lives. And you hit these walls, and, and I'm going to tell you, you know what, the gospel is still for you. But you're just not going to see Jesus as big, and your relationship is not going to be as intimate as it, as it could be. And that's, that's just, I mean, that, that's in marriage. If you only give a part of yourself to your spouse, you're not going to reap the deepest benefits of marriage. You might just play house. You might stay married. But you're not actually getting to this deep sense of marriage and interdependency. And, and Jesus is pointing that exact same thing in the vine. The second thing he talks about, I promise I'll go quicker. The first one was a big point. The second thing he talks about is, uh, is pruning. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm a big bonsai enthusiast. Um, I can talk about that a whole other time, so I'm just going to keep it short. I like cultivating species into mini trees. Okay, that's what bonsai is. And it's a very long process, anywhere from 5 to 20 years. Okay, And it's good for me. It slows me down. But... When you prune anything, uh, all my buddies are in, they all like their PhDs in horticulture and they talk about this. Pruning is essential, not only for bonsai, but for any tree. Pruning is actually essential. You let a tree just grow, it typically will have problems, weak points, too many branches coming out of one spot, all these type of things. Pruning is essential. Following Jesus requires this aspect of pruning and he talks about how the only prerequisite for pruning is basically whether or not you're abiding in Jesus. If, you, if you're trying to do it on your own, you're trying to break off and do your own thing, it's fine, it'll work for a while, but you'll die. And not only that, you'll be gathered up, you'll be tossed in to the fire. And so for us, pruning is essential, which means that when you follow Jesus, you're going to experience maybe some rebuke, maybe some accountability. Maybe someone in your life who really loves you is like, look, you just trust me, humble yourself. You know, I've been experiencing this in marriage where... There's just like the way that I think and, and I get insecure in moments. I'm just hard-headed, believe it or not. And, and it's just really hard. And I just, I don't have humility. And I've had to have other people in my life be like, Trey, you're being an idiot. Because, you know, it's harder in marriage to see that sometimes. And it's really hard, but it's essential, right? If I'm not somewhat upset about something with someone, then I'm probably not being pruned. And our church has taken a really hard stance on this. We've said, you know what, we're going to reach young people. And we want them to be this beautiful tree in 20 years, and 30 years. We're not going to waste their time now. We're going to prune them. And it's going to hurt sometimes. And some people are not going to like it. In this culture today, no one really likes pruning, even probably more than 20 years ago. But we're just going to be honest with people. And we're going to try to lead them to Jesus. And we're going to try to be straight up with the things that they've struggled, that they've inherited from their parents, their families, that they've inherited from their life, that they're, that they're seeking after and trying to discern that through the culture. Right? We're, just, we're going to do it. And it hurts, but what is the point of pruning? And what does Jesus say? You are pruned so that you bear more fruit. That, that formation and becoming like Jesus is a part of the journey, and we do it because we believe that in that we become more like Jesus. And sometimes fruit is actually a, a thing. We do something, but a lot of times it's just our heart becoming more like Jesus. That's the fruit. And so we're going to prune to bear more fruit. Number three in verse four, I mentioned this, but you cannot bear any fruit outside of the vine. And so spiritual abiding and growth are not just about becoming morally better people, right? But it's about a dependence, a deepening of our dependence on the gospel. Tim Keller said this, 
this is kind of an ode to him since he, he uh, unfortunately passed away this week. He said, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And so we have to be careful about the religion aspect versus the abiding aspect. And we have to remind ourselves of this reality that we cannot do it on our own and trying to just make this impressive list for God is not going to work. Number four, and this is just a reality in this passage, is that hell is real and people will choose in their own selfishness that goes unchecked and unaccountable to live a life of their own that will be hell. That will, like, the, the, the gardener is the gardener and if you decide to do it on your own, you're not going to be in his vineyard and you're not going to be a part of the vine. And you make that decision and you choose that way, your selfishness will lead to hell and it is corruption and it is not good. I think we know this as humans. If you let someone have an unlimited power with no checks and balances, it doesn't typically end well. And we've seen this over thousands of years of history. But in the same way, if you choose your own selfishness, it goes unchecked and unaccountable. There's no brokenness. You see no dependence. You're making a hell and, and you will be taken off the vine. Number five, Jesus' words, which are his teachings in his heart, must make their home in us. And out of that, we start to ask for the things that Jesus desires. This one is often missed. We read the, the passage where it says, ask whatever you want and it'll be given to you. We're like, yeah, cool. I can get whatever I want. I want this thing. I want this Lamborghini. And Jesus loves me, so he's going to give it to me, right? Obviously, easy. But you don't read the few, ver- the few words before that, which says, when you make your home in me, in my heart, in my teachings, then you ask in my name and you'll get those things. What Jesus is saying is, when you abide in what the vine and the vine prioritizes in once and you start to emulate and desire the exact same things, then you'll get that very thing. If in marriage, you start to say, I want all of these things selfishly and you just need to get in line and deal with it, right? you're not abiding. There's no, there's no abiding there. And it's silly to think that those things are going to happen. You're probably going to be miserable and resentful because you're not getting them. But if you start to come together and you start to build a relationship, you start to prioritize together, you start to become one in your decisions, when you make those decisions, eventually you start to, to be excited and to have joy about them because you've come together and the beauty of that relationship has fostered those decisions. It's not just selfish silos of resentment and anger. And that's what Jesus wants for us. When we care about his heart and his teachings, they become our very own. Number six, we abide and we honor God by abiding, which, like I said, leads to fruit, which actually leads to proof that Jesus is in our lives. Now, I'm not, I'm not in the business of judging who goes to heaven or hell. That's not my job, okay? But what I can tell you is that Jesus says it'll be very clear if you have fruit or not. The branches that don't have fruit are not going to be a part of the vine. The branches that are a part of the vine are pruned so they can bear more and more fruit, right? And fruit is a bit subjective. Fruit could be just following the law. Fruit could be seeing the things that Jesus prioritizes in the world. Fruit could be, like I said, the sanctification process in your heart. It could be all of those things. I don't know necessarily what's going on in your heart. But I'd say in a couple of years, I could tell if you're more patient or not. Or if, you fit, if, you're, if you're dealing, if you're surrendering that anger issue over to the Lord, or if you're acknowledging some of your childhood trauma. Like, you know, those starts, we can see those things. That's why being in community is so important. So we can see, you know what, is there fruit in your lives? Great, amazing, praise God. But it's also dangerous to say, there's no fruit. What do we do about that? I'm not the, like I said, I'm not the decision maker. But Jesus says, if you abide in me, that we honor God and, and it leads to fruit. We learn his teachings, we walk in them, and we see fruit. Number seven is obeying Jesus is a part of abiding him, and that's what leads to the fruit. And I think we, we think obedience is often synonymous with just like 
cold, calculated, heartless um, vigor. It's like, I just need to force, like obedience is always a negative thing. It's what I don't want to do. And it's, but it's not that way in abiding. And this is what Tim Keller says, the two signs of being organically connected with, with, are with two spiritual fruits, love and obedience. He says the obedience is more like an acid test. Love is an emotion. And sometimes it's hard to judge love, but love leads to obedience. When you love someone, you say to them, your wish is my command. When you love somebody and they want something, you get excited to get it for them. Your attitude is not, what do they want now? That's the difference between gospel love and mechanical obedience to religion. Someone says that you meditate on the law of the Lord means that you scour it. A lawyer will scour the laws to find loopholes, but if you're in love with God, you'll scour his word because you realize it are the ways to please him. And it is kind of like when you discover some gift that you know somebody you love once, you are so excited about giving it to them because now you will have something that will really thrill them and you think that's just fantastic. When we think about deep abiding, obedience becomes something very different. It becomes far less about how crappy um, the things that we're trying to do are or, or just gritting through it. It becomes a joy and a delight because we want to please the person. And in this case, when we abide in Jesus, we are wanting to please Jesus, which pleases his Father. And the vine is our connection in that. And then the last one, which is just kind of the nice icing on top, the, the, the probably ultimate fruit of all of this, is number eight, our, we are gifted complete joy. It's in verse 11. He says, my joy will be complete, and in you you'll have joy. I don't know about you. I've experienced very little joy in this. I have seasonal happiness, and probably turns me into a Pharisee, right, or I get too comfortable. But there is extreme joy in knowing that the more I'm broken, the more I'm dependent I am on the Lord. I can be joyful in all of my circumstances. I can lack uh, anxiety in the midst of these things because I'm not gauging on how this will affect my spiritual trajectory of performance, but that I know I'm deeply loved just as much today as I was yesterday as I will be tomorrow. And that's a beautiful, joyful thing. And so to wrap all this up, um, you know, one of the things I've been doing each week is talking about how what's like a practical or a spiritual discipline that we can engage with that would kind of help us start to create a space for this type of reality to become uh, real in our lives. And the thing with this is I can't really give you an easy plug and chug formula. This isn't a math equation where you just got to have the right number. It is not a checklist. It's the exact opposite of what this is. And so the only thing that I could think of that would conjure up a space for you to be able to just be in this and experience this is what we call the Jesus prayer. Um, And it's rooted in this idea that it's a breath prayer that you say, and you say it with your breath, inhale and exhale, and it's very simple. And it's, it's, it's got hundreds of years of history, but it's literally just Lord Jesus. I'm shortening, and there's a different version, but Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's just a repetition of this. And this is like I said, this isn't a formula. It's not like you sit and all of a sudden, like the clouds align and, you know, and you, like stars come out of nowhere. It's just me acknowledging where I'm at in the reality. And maybe you say it and you don't even believe it, right? You just are saying it, and you're like, I don't know. Trey told me to do this, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> But, but there's this beauty in creating this space where like, if we really start to think about our brokenness and we really start to think of the walls that we're at and the things that we just need to leave in the Spirit's hands and we need to make ourselves home in Jesus and we're terrified to kick our shoes off because we don't know what Jesus will think of our feet, right? If we're just willing to do that, this has been formative for not only me but for a lot of people over the last several hundred years. And I want us to just try that today because I think that prayer is the only thing that will get us to this place. 
And prayer is just conversation with God. It's abiding and walking with him. And what prayer, I think, means and is so important is prayer is the gauge of if we are walking hand in hand with Jesus or not. Because it's kind of weird to be way ahead of Jesus and be yelling back to him, hey, do these things. Why aren't these things happening, right? But if we're walking hand in hand, prayer can become a conversation. It's very hard to, you know, I remember one time I ran a 15K with a buddy of mine and we were going to run the same pace and we are just going to like talk and hang out the whole race. And, and very quickly I was getting competitive and I was like, nah, this is too slow. And so I just ditched him. And we both finished the race in very different times, but I didn't have anyone to talk to the rest of the race, right? And, and I made that decision for myself. And so sometimes prayer feels like this is everything against me in my space, in the world. Prayer doesn't accomplish anything, right? It's a waste of time. That's what we feel. We do. Why don't I just run on ahead? I'm fast. I can do it. But I promise you that abiding is hand in hand. It is not you running ahead and yelling back to Jesus because you're experiencing everything on your own and not with him. And so prayer is a, a recentering. It's a slowing down. It's a holding Jesus' hand again. And I think for us, it can be incredibly formative. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.